many of us may still be on lockdown, but cyber thieves definitely are not. Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Editor-in-Chief of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. As if the coronavirus pandemic weren't enough of a problem, supply chains are having to deal with the heightened risk of cybersecurity threats. Hackers are taking full advantage of this extraordinary moment when precautionary efforts may be slacking off and employees working from home present a whole new range of possible network vulnerabilities. So what to do? Today, I'm speaking with Ray Rothrock, CEO of Red Seal, a cyber terrain mapping company who offers valuable advice on shoring up networks in a confusing and even chaotic time. He is also an author on the topic and serves on several advisory boards, including those overseeing the possibility of nuclear threat. So let's learn how to function safely in a zero-trust environment. Here is my conversation with Ray Rothrock. Ray Rothrock, welcome back to the show. Hi, Bob. Thank you. Well, we're going to be talking about supply chain vulnerabilities, specifically cybersecurity in the age of COVID-19 and the pandemic. And and first of all, I'm just wondering if you, you've seen a surge in incidents out there recently in tandem with this particular crisis. Some of our customers reported some attacks, more penetration attacks. People think that you're distracted with the health side of things, and so they're upping their game a little bit. That certainly is happening. What types of threats are we seeing? What form is it taking? Well, we don't know exactly. I mean, these are penetration tests, so uh, not tests, penetration threats. So they're just mm-hmm. trying to find a whole kind of weakness in your perimeter so that if they can get through, they can then set up a fortress, if you will, or a patrol to hunt for things. Those are the most common things you see. And then, of course, if they do latch on to something, then other technologies take over. But there is a lot of penetration attempts against firewalls and stuff these days. Is the nature of those threats, of those attempts, any different than it was before the pandemic, or is it just the same stuff we've been seeing all along? Same stuff all along, just a lot more of it. In order to even talk about them, by definition, we must have known they happened. I mean, yeah. to what extent do we actually know, and are, to what extent are there actually possible pings or attempts that we don't even know are occurring? That's what we all worry about, right? That one time they do find a chink in the armor or someone was updating a piece of equipment like a firewall and forgot to turn it on to a certain condition or something. That is exactly what we were about. You may have seen just yesterday the Verizon DBIR came out. This is an annual report put out by Verizon. It's a very significant report. They report on the facts. And a key fact was it's been such an acceleration to the cloud that the number of misconfigurations, that is people making mistakes when they Mm -hmm. program this equipment and turn it on, has become the number one problem for the bad guys finding a crack in your armor to get through, that there's just a configuration problem. Yeah. That's very significant, as because guess what's going to the cloud? The data. 
and now you've put your data somewhere and you haven't secured it properly, so it's now more vulnerable than it was when it was not in the cloud. That's what the report showed. We hear about errors of commission and errors of omission, especially uh-huh. in the era of the Internet of Things. All these devices that come to us with factory-set passwords that nobody bothers to change. So is that, <laughs> yes. And yes. for all we keep urging people to not do that, is it still a problem that, that employees just are not themselves practicing good practices in, in handling all these devices? Well, I think we've gotten a lot, lot better. We really, truly have. In the last three or four or five years, people have gotten smarter, more. We've, we've gone through training, we've gone through fish training and all this stuff. But at the end of the day, every report, including the Verizon, the number one thing is a human being clicked on an email attachment they shouldn't have. They were fooled. The social engineering hooks to a piece of technology cause a human being to do something wrong. That is still the problem. And what do you do? You can move people to where they're not in that situation where they'd be clicking on emails from customers or something. Technology to 100% deal with phishing is just not there yet. It's very hard. Mm-hmm. But once we get one part of it shored up, then the, yeah. the attackers <laughs> figure out another way. And it just always yeah. seems like they're just one step ahead of us all, yeah. all the time. And we're just playing I, catch up. I think that's true. It also depends on what the, who the hacker is, right? If it's a nation state, then their agenda may be very different than a commercial hack, for example. Commercial hack may be just interested in your your pricing information or your your suppliers, who is providing you certain components and what have you. Whereas a nation state may be a very different and mm-hmm. dangerous thing to create havoc or to present misinformation, if you will, to the world. So it just depends, and I think it it, it ebbs and flows. The stuff we've been seeing is primarily that we've been had, not that we see, but that our customers reported out as a lot of nation-state activity really? more than in the past, yeah. Interesting, because a lot yeah. of what gets the headlines is the ransomware and stuff like that, which yeah. we think are individual bad actors. Maybe they're nation-states, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, but in the nation-state, well, I guess the nation-states are always going to deny they're doing it, so maybe that's another reason why we can't like, <laughs> yeah. that's why we, point we the finger somebody, it seems. at these yeah. things. So, I mean, do you believe that, that recently the trend has been more toward the nation-state as opposed to the individual bad guy? Well, we certainly know they're well-organized. Cyber is a very asymmetric vehicle to attack, right? I mean, no one's going to attack the United States kinetically. I mean, our ability to respond, to literally blow you out of the water, so to speak, is enormous. Now, we're very hesitant to use it, but cyber, it's asymmetric. One mistake, one fallacy, we can get in there and muck around with the IRS. We can muck around with our mutual fund interest rates. You can do all kinds of things very surreptitiously from a nation-state point of view. Goodness, you can get into a law firm and find out what M&A is coming down, go into the stock market, buy the stock, and it's sold the next day at twice the number. Then you can collect that money. You're a nation state, a poor nation state. Yeah. Might need again, some cash. Yeah. As you point uh, out, though, you could also be industrial espionage. Also, yeah. it could be yet another yeah. law firm trying to hack, and, yeah. hack another one. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Here in the Silicon yeah. Valley, it happens all the time. Sometimes the FBI or somebody shows up and hauls out three or four employees because they've been accused of espionage, and they're on the inside actually facilitating it from the inside out. Uh, in this age, uh, this time of sheltering in place and people working from home in remote locations, has that also increased the vulnerability of networks? Yes, it did, Bob. Essentially what that did, it made the what's called the attack surface, that is the number of points that you could try to get in, has expanded greatly. My company, for example, 150 people. Well, I used to have 80 people in one place and the rest of the sales force and stuff on the road. They're still on the road, but now I have 80 people working from home. So my attack surface increased from 1 to 80. So, yeah, and then you're dealing with home consumer equipment, which isn't as industrial 
It may not have all the bells and whistles that you really need. So you, you have those vulnerabilities. And then, of course, your kids or whatever are using it in a way, and they leave a computer on overnight, and something comes in the back door. I mean, there's just a million ways you can get in when you're working at home. Here's a, just a, one little example. So one of our customers did this. They sent their people home, but they sent them home with a Meraki access point. And that Meraki access point was controlled to be managed by the corporation, but only allow the corporate computer on it while you're at home. So that was the way they took control. They essentially kept their attack surface in place, intact, instead of letting everybody's home router take care of the security. Is that a particularly expensive or complex thing yes. to do? <laughs> I'm sure it was complex because they had to program everything, and it's not cheap. Right, if you had, I don't know, 10,000 employees and you sent them all home with a Meraki uh, router, a access point plus a computer, that's, I don't know, $10,000 a person? I don't know, but it's not cheap. You can't make a calculation as to the value of that individual to the system, too, because even the lowliest individual, if they have access to this network, can provide the same door in as exactly. anyone using yeah. it. So, That's exactly right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, so let's talk a little bit about solutions here, because, you know, don't take this personally, but there's no lack of cyber experts out there who are perfectly happy to describe what happened after something yeah. <laughs> something happened, yeah. and yet we need you guys yeah. to help us before it happens. So let's talk about solutions. One of the things I'm interested in, you know, Red Seal is described as a cyber terrain mapping company. What right. is that all about, and how does that give you, like, the beginnings of a solution? So in order to protect something, you have to understand. You have to know what your assets are. You have to know what your inventory looks like. You have to know how it's connected and how it's operating. It's like, how do you fix a car if you don't know what an engine looks like? How do you secure buildings from fire if you don't know where the sprinklers are? So our technology figures all that out. We calculate every path, port, and protocol in the network, whether it's wired, wireless, IoT, you name it. We figure it, find it, and give you a software map of it. Now, that's, that's interesting, and a lot of people do mapping. Cisco does mapping. Big companies do mapping. But what we do, we also go in and grab all your endpoint data, which you've gotten from other products like Qualys or Tenable or those guys, and we overlay that with the map so we can calculate a context-relative vulnerability, not just a vulnerability, but is this part of your network particularly susceptible to attack, and do you have assets there that you do not want attacked, or if, if they were attacked, it would be very bad for your company. So we actually stack rank the context-based vulnerabilities. That is unique to what we do. It's very hard. All of our patents are in this area, mm-hmm. and it's a big deal. Now, these networks, like in the supply chain world, are huge, right? And let's say you're the consumer, and you have a supply chain person A, and then that person gets A1, 2, and 3, and then they get something from B1, 2, 3, and it just it fans out, right? Mm-hmm. How do you enforce that? all the way down the line. You can't, so you have to be very diligent at your end of that network to make sure what's coming in you can track and understand where it goes. Mm-hmm. And that's something we do for plenty of our customers who use us in exactly that mode. Yeah, so you're equipping them with an initial knowledge of the system. I mean, people say this about the supply chain, too, in a larger sense. The first thing you got to do is map your supply chain. Okay, mm-hmm. that's step one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now that mm-hmm. you know all that stuff, I guess we've talked a little bit about how one big thing is education of the people. But on the technology side, is the technology out there at least theoretically sufficient to take this information and turn it into very protected environments or not? We think it is, but... You have so much to protect, you can't protect it all equally. So you have to prioritize, and that's where we're particularly good. We prioritize for you what's the most vulnerable relative to what's most important to you. 
Those two things combined is a very hard thing to do. And if you've got 100,000 people and you've got a global supply chain, what matters? Similarly, not just technologically, but in the supply chain world, I think about things like when you're buying something, you want to know about their financial condition, their solvency. You want to know if they're participating in terrorism. All this is due diligence, right, that you do on your supply chain before you buy something from somebody. And likewise, technology can do So who's vulnerable? Well, if, if you're buying from a supplier who sells also to terrorists, you know, that's probably a vulnerable spot for you. Mm-hmm. You learn that through due diligence. Technology can do the same thing. It does due diligence on your infrastructure so that you can understand what you have and decide whether you want to allow it or not. We talk a lot about resilience. We always have. But now the big buzzword, I don't mean to demean the word because it is important, but the word everybody likes to throw around these days is digital. What is digital resilience as opposed to just (laughs) mere resilience? Well, resilience, Webster's Dictionary, is surviving an impairment. Mm-hmm. Failing through an impairment, and so the world doesn't know you had one. Recovering from something. Ships are designed to be resilient. Unfortunately, the Titanic wasn't very resilient, but big ships are, and, and they have watertight compartments and all that. Likewise, you could design your technology to be resilient so that if you were attacked, you could contain the virus or the problem or whatever. And you can only do that if you understand what you have. So being digitally resilient means you basically know where the watertight compartments are and know how to take action. Part of our software at Red Seal is we actually give you a recipe. Oh, you've got a problem, you've got an incident of compromise at this particular router. Here are the things you can do. We literally give that to you. It's a recipe. And you're in the incident command center dealing with this stuff. The last thing you need to do is have to figure out where the fire is. We'll tell you where the fire is, and we'll tell you which trucks to send in to take care of it. That's a huge deal. There are three things. Zero trust. That's the world we're in. Mm-hmm. Second is incident response. That's the world we're in. That's when you learn something, you've got to respond to it. And then the third is resilience, because resilience ultimately results in greater customer trust, supply chain partner trust, financial trust, and all those things. You don't want to put your money in a bank that doesn't lock the door, right? Mm-hmm. So banks have figured out how to be resilient and how to convince their customers that they're resilient to an attack. Yeah. Well, that, that's so. the prevention up front. And then afterwards, though, what about... Uh, protecting, or what about system redundancy in the event of yep. an attack? In yep. the event it takes down your whole system and maybe you, yep. you've got it redundant, you can recover quickly. To what extent is that even possible and to what extent do companies do that today? Well, they do a lot of that today. That's called business continuity. That's a particular category. There's a lot of equipment you can buy. And it's just what you said. It's about failover power supplies and multiple UPSs in your data center and stuff. And then there's disaster recovery. It's not just a power supply goes down or a network cable gets cut, but the whole building burns to the ground. Well, you need to have another data system somewhere. That's called disaster recovery from a total catastrophic event. Digital resilience is all those things can happen to you, but you make it such a way that you come out the other side looking like nothing ever happened to you. If your building burns to the ground, everybody knows it, right? But if your building digitally burns to the ground, you don't want anybody to know it. And that's where you need to focus on your network and in your infrastructure. To what extent is it a challenge? That When you're talking about that, I wonder, is that a hard message to sell to some CEOs or the people who hold the purse strings? <laughs> There's a cost involved in that, yeah. and they may or may not feel like it's worth the money. They're pretty cash-strapped themselves these days in terms of CapEx and stuff like that. So is it a message that's sometimes hard to get across? It's very hard to get across. Look, in general, security in a corporate environment is a grudge buy, plain and simple. Hmm. It's an expense. It's a cost. Hmm. And nobody wants to increase their cost. But you have to know what matters to you because you can't protect everything equally. The locks on the vault are different than the locks on the front door. It's just a fact. 
of life. So that someone has decided what's important inside of a bank, and that's mm-hmm. what they protect physically. Likewise, in your corporation. So once you decide what's important to you, then you can spend the appropriate money to protect those assets from being pilfered or burned down or stolen or manipulated in a way that what if you got in and manipulated the chemical formula for a particular pharmaceutical somewhere and they started manufacturing the wrong stuff and shipping it? I mean, how catastrophic would that be to the trust of that pharmaceutical company? It'd be awful. But that's yeah. possible if you don't protect. The other thing is the old joke of Coke. I mean, do you know the formula for Coke? I don't. Nobody no. does. It's completely secret, right? Mm-hmm. It's in a, on a piece of paper in a vault, they say. That's sort of the ultimate. But my point is you have to decide what's important and then spend the appropriate money to protect what you think is important. You cannot protect every computer, every router, every door equally. Yeah. And that's a hard problem. In terms of what's at stake, up to this point, our conversation has focused pretty exclusively on business and the private sector. But you serve on a number of advisory boards to the Department of Energy, Nuclear Energy Advisory Committee, the Nuclear Threat Initiative. Now we're talking about the stakes are really high. Yeah. <laughs> where are we in the state of cybersecurity in those areas that you're advising on where if we fail, boy, we fail big? Great question. That's probably a whole other podcast, but I'll just take yeah. on nuclear power for a minute. So these plants are huge. They've been built, designed with lots of redundancies, and I used to do that 30, 40 years ago. So I understand sort of the engineering, the mentality and stuff. But really, when it gets to the cyber, the problem is is to hijack control, for example, remote control. And so it turns out that in the world, the globe, everybody's getting together twice a year, and they talk about these issues, and they talk about the vendors and the products and the strategies that give them the best defense against the things that matter, and typically is about control and really response to an issue. Most big nuclear power plants, they're very automated. They have incredible logic systems to figure out what to do next, and they mostly take care of themselves. What you don't want is that tampered with. You don't want that logic confused. If suddenly the reactor starts heating up, you don't want them to stop the water pumps. You want them to increase the water pumps. I'm just making up a silly example, but those are the kinds of things that have to be checked. And and it turns out there's a lot of – it's hard to do that. First of all, these plants are pretty well protected cyber-wise. And they've also been designed so that if you got a hold of one system, you can't do a lot of damage. A bad accident, in any industrial, a bad thing happens when like three things go wrong, not just one. And nuclear power plants are designed with even more. More things have to go wrong for them to have a real problem. But to put to your point, the people who own and run these things are getting together now. This is a serious issue. Number one, they meet twice a year. And the Nuclear Threat Initiative that I'm on the board of is the promoter of that and sponsor of that. They convene that event. Well, you know, you're out there ringing the bell. You're something of an educator because you're an author. Your book, Digital Resilience, is your company ready for the next cyber threat, which I will link to in the show notes to this episode. But that being the case, what is the one big message that you just really want to hammer home to people about the whole issue of cybersecurity in the supply chain today? It goes like this. It is impossible to be perfect. So when a situation presents itself, a cyber situation presents itself, Stop and think. Think critically. Don't just accept everything at face value. It's like anything in life. If things are happening, just you need to stop and take a pill, as I used to say. Take a pause. Mm -hmm. These systems are very good. They're very technologically advanced. AI is starting to appear everywhere, and they're going to advise you to do things. But at the end of the day, a human being is held accountable for these actions, so a human being should make the final decision. So that's all. If you're in charge, don't grab the nearest fire extinguisher unless you're on fire, but think before you act. That's all I can say is when trouble happens, you have a lot of data and a lot of things to consider. So just take a breath. 
Great message. Well, Ray Rothrock, author and CEO of Red Seal, thanks so much for being with us to give us these all-important messages, especially these days. Thanks a lot for your insights. Thank you, Bob. Really appreciate it. That was my conversation with Ray Rothrock of Red Seal, talking about supply chain cybersecurity in a pandemic. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. Stay well, and see you next time.